Father, we uh, come before you and we thank you for the word that has been delivered to us throughout the centuries. You have decided that this information is vital for us. It is our guidebook. It is what informs us about you and about us, our fallenness and your plan of redemption. Help us, Lord, to apprehend all of this information. Make it our own. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to use it, not just simply sit on it, but to dispense it whenever we have the need, whenever you have the need, and provide for us opportunities in which to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. One question before we get started. Is it cold in here? How many think it's cold? How many think it's hot? Okay, never mind. I still feel like we're split. I'm, I'm, I feel this right here, and it's like it feels cold to me. And if it feels cold to me at this elevation, it might be a little cold to you. What's the temperature set at? That's cold. Turn it up to uh, at least 72. We'll make a compromise here, okay? We turned it up. And if you have a need for a blanket, they are in the back next to Mario. He has a basket full of blankets, okay? And fans, you can use the bulletins. All right. We are in Hebrews chapter 6. And last week we looked at infants as opposed to those who are mature. And it is our job to go on to maturity when we are to examine ourselves to see if we are on that road. We are also supposed to examine ourselves to see if we are even saved because scripture talks about those people who think they are saved but actually are not. Now in chapter 6 verses 4 through about 8, This particular set of verses has been misused, uh, taken out of context to mean something that it was never meant to mean, but people point to it to buttress the idea that you can lose your salvation. And first, I'm just going to read it. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss, they are crucifying the son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives The blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be it will be burned. And so the misunderstanding here that people arrive at or what they go to is this idea that you can taste of the goodness of God. And if you go away from it, it specifically says you can't come back. So in other words, does this mean if somebody backslides, they cannot repent and return back to the Lord? And backsliding can have a couple of different connotations. One is to apostatize, to leave the faith, 
to once be in the faith, declare Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and then exit the faith and say, Jesus is not God, and you don't believe in, quote, unquote, the Christian God. That's apostatizing. Then there is the backsliding, where you just fall into a pattern of sin, lethargy, and laziness concerning your spiritual attitude and walk, where you just say, you know, that was for a period of time in my life, but I believe in God, and you know, I don't need any church to go to. Of course, that is completely unscriptural, but that's somebody being in a backslidden state that declares they still believe in God. And so when somebody refers to this idea of backsliding, it can mean either one of those. But remember, back in verse 6, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance, it says it's basically impossible to do that, that they can't be brought back to repentance. Now, the problem with going in this direction, can you lose your salvation and not be saved again? It's taken out of context that's not what's meant to be communicated in these particular verses here. And over the years, I've heard the arguments on this, but you have to remember the author is writing to whom? Who's he writing to? Anyone? He's writing to the Hebrews, to the Jews. Okay, so the Jews, if you take it out of context and you say, well, you know, if he's writing to a Gentile, that's a whole nother subject. And especially in context of the chapter, and in context of the whole book, you have to make sure you become a Jew, and as you're metaphorically speaking, and as you listen to what is being read or as you read what is being taught, you say, I am a Jew, and I have to keep that in perspective in order to understand what's being communicated here. Regardless of that, I'm going to dive into this idea of losing your salvation because so many people fall into the error of using this verse or these verses to communicate that. There are those who would say, well, you can lose your salvation, but you can be restored. There are those who would say, once you lose your salvation, you cannot be restored. Uh, what if you backslide? Can you turn back to the Lord? Some would say, no, you can't turn back. It is impossible for a person to go forward. Is it possible for a person to go forward in an altar call, pray to receive Christ and then not really be saved? Is that possible? If you lose all hope, if you, if you apostatize in a huge way and you turn away from God, is there a chance that you can return again? Because after all, what else is there? I mean, once you find the truth and you know that God says there is either heaven or hell, you have those two choices. There's not a third option. You don't have another way station that you can go to. There's not a, another place that you can go and hang out with all the other people who don't want to go to hell and who don't want to go to heaven. There is no third option. We have just one, right? When you get in a plane, you can travel to several different countries, but you're traveling on the earth. You don't have an option to leave the earth. Now, if you're an astronaut, you might go to the moon. And just as a side note, you know, it's so ridiculous. They're talking about, we've got to go to the other planets, and they say, it's only like nine light years away. Do you know how long it takes to travel like to the near star for our technology today? It's like 30,000 years. It, it, and that's only like four to six light years. 
because it's the distance light travels in one year. You don't have an option. I mean, this is it. You can maybe inhabit the solar system, but we're stuck here for generations to come, lots of generations to come. When we die, we get two choices. We get to go to heaven or we get to go to hell. Again, there is no in-between. So this is pretty important. Which one do you want? And if somebody says, I don't like the choices. (laughs) Well, okay, well, you know which one you're going to get if you don't like the choices. And the one who chooses not to go to heaven is the one who chooses to go to hell. That's the way it works. If you say, I don't want God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, what he has for me, eternal bliss, eternal life, I don't want any of that. Okay, you understand the consequence. You get the secondary prize, and it's not a very good prize, right? So this is what we're dealing with, and this is why... It is important that we understand this. So as I said before, backsliding, it's a slacking in one's commitment to Christ. It's not attending church or a fellowship. It's seldom praying or reading the scriptures, if ever, never engaging in the struggle to walk in a way that is pleasing to God. It it gives into sin regularly, the person who is backsliding. God simply is not a priority when he should be a top priority. And so that's a person who's backsliding. Now, can this person lose their salvation? In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul is writing to the Galatian church. And in the Galatian church, there are those who are Judaizers. And what they want of the people is for them to follow the law and become circumcised. And Paul, later in the book, he gets so upset with them that he says... I hope that when you go and circumcise yourself, that you miss. (laughs) Now, that's in the modern-day version, but that's what he tells them. The word, I think, in the NIV is emasculate themselves. He is so concerned, and he gives this biting sarcasm to them, like, I hope you just make a big mistake, you know? And, And he lets them know how off they are in their pursuit of this. But there are also those in the Galatian church who have sinned and those who are spiritual are supposed to restore them. And those who have sinned have backslidden. Now, there is no reference in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, that the person has lost their salvation. He says, you who are spiritual should restore that individual. And the word restore, what is it referring to? Is it referring to salvation or is it referring to fellowship? It's referring to fellowship. In context, it's not referring to salvation. I will say this right up front. The person who is truly saved will always be saved. And I qualified that with truly. Now, how do you know if you're truly saved? Buckle your seatbelt. We go on. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, there's this individual, probably the individual in 1 Corinthians that a letter was written to the Corinthian church. There was a man who was sleeping with his father's wife, probably his stepmother. And they were boastful and proud that they had the grace to do this, that they could, you know, God will forgive them. Should we sin that the grace of God may much more abound? God forbid, the book of Romans says. But they were mistakenly under the belief system that you can do whatever you want to and God will forgive you. And he also corrects that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, which I'll get to in a minute. 
But apparently, when Paul wrote the letter, they excommunicated the guy for the destruction of the flesh that in the end the spirit might be saved. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, they think it's the same guy. Since they excommunicated him, it was a burdenous, it was onerous for this individual to endure, and he wanted to be restored, and Paul had to tell them, okay, forgive this guy. Let this guy back in. Fellowship with this guy. It doesn't refer to him losing his salvation. He was under a misunderstanding what the grace of God was about, and he had backslidden, even unknowingly, probably because the teaching was bad. The teaching was not what it was supposed to be. It wasn't coming directly from God's word or the apostles' doctrine. They were just saying, oh, yeah, the freedom to do this because the grace of God is so big, it almost lends itself to the understanding that you can do just about anything you want. But remember, Paul said not everything is expedient or not everything is beneficial. Even though he had the freedom to do all things, not everything is good. And so these two individuals, both in Galatians and in 2 Corinthians, Paul urges these individuals to restore somebody who has been taken out of fellowship, but in no way does it say they have lost their salvation. So is it possible for someone to be in the church for years and not even be saved? Well, I will say yes. I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 7. And in Matthew chapter 7, it goes from 15 to 27 and it deals with a couple of subjects here and it kind of gives us insight as to somebody who could be in a church and they look to be christians but they're not in verse 15 it says watch out for false prophets now these are individuals who claim to speak for god to the people but they are called false here in the book of matthew they come to you in sheep's clothing which means They come to you humbly, sheepish, so to speak. They come to you in a gentle fashion. But inwardly, they are ferocious wolves. By the fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, many good trees are... Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And also, if you remember the kingdom parables that Jesus taught, he he taught that there, for instance, in the parable of the sower of the seed in chapter Uh, 13 of Matthew this idea that seed is sown in the first one the seed falls on the pathway and what comes and takes it it's the birds and Jesus later explains that these birds are actually Satan Satan comes and takes the word of God then he gives another kingdom parable where you have a mustard seed it's planted in the garden it's the smallest of all the seeds but it becomes the greatest tree in all the garden and then the birds come and rest in its branches those birds if you understand the first parable you'll understand this parable that ministers of satan will get inside the church and it will be like these false prophets and it's for those who have the gift of discernment to let us know well who are these people inward they are ferocious wolves and they want to devour the people inside the body they want to take advantage of them so there are going to be people inside the church 
that are not disciples, people inside of the church that are not Christians. And we need to be aware of that, always on the lookout, because they want to pillage and take from the body. In verse 21, it goes on to those who do not put into practice God's word. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. So they never had this relationship with Christ. To know somebody, Gnosko, to know somebody... You have to have relationship with them, right? And so for us, if we are believers, if we are disciples, we spend time with God. Now, we do so corporately, right? We get together as a church. But also, we're supposed to do this individually, where we get together with God. We meet him. We read his word. We pray to him. He ministers to us. He lets us know his will. Apparently, this is not the habit of those who say, Lord, didn't we do these great things in your name, cast out demons? He goes, apart from me, I never knew you. In other words, you never talked to me. If you look back in the Old Testament, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, the prophets in Jerusalem, we're declaring great things for Jerusalem. And God sarcastically turns and says, they are making things up. I don't know who these people are. These people are false prophets. And so they would claim to speak for God, but they are so far from God, they don't understand who he is. Just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees of Jesus' time, they had the outward adornments of a religion but they had no relationship with him whatsoever. In verse 24, it goes on. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is a wise man, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had, it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does them or does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. So in other words, if you are rooted and you are grounded in God, when the trials come, you're not going to fall away. You're not going to be shaken. It's like, I love it, you storms. You know, you're, you're able to resist anything which is out there because you are dwelling with Christ. You know him. You are abiding in him, just like the book of John says. Now, some are deceived into thinking that they are saved and they are not, according to Paul again in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, often I've used this section in the past, it's repeated in the book of Galatians. I believe it's chapter 5, verse 19. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, there are those who are wicked, and the Apostle Paul gives them a warning about being deceived. When somebody is deceived, they don't know they're on the wrong path. And so how do you get them to see clearly that something is the right path. The only way to do that is God's word. God's word is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. And it's able to, to divide joints and marrow, soul and spirit. And that's where you let the word of God in. It's like, uh, was it King David said, see if there be any wicked way in me. In other words, God examine me. How do we examine ourselves? We read the word and we ask ourselves, is that me? Does this apply to me? And if it does then we have to change it because we see that our will, and this is part of repentance, our will needs to conform 
to God's will. And whatever we think is right needs to be cast aside and buried. And whatever God thinks is right, we need to adopt. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, the wicked are those who don't know God. They have no relationship with him. Do not be deceived. There it is. And this one you probably want to highlight in your Bibles if you have your Bibles open. Do not be deceived. In other words, come out of your darkness. You need to realize this is the truth. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And so there are those who say, it's okay that I'm sleeping with somebody outside of marriage. I believe in God and he'll forgive me. I believe it's okay to take drugs. God's grace is bigger than that and he'll forgive me. I believe that I can commit this crime and God knows I need the money more than somebody else and he'll forgive me if it is a sin. God's grace is big. And right here he says, don't be deceived. If you think that's okay, it's not okay. Now, this is not talking about, well, what about the person who falls into sin? Go back to Galatians 6.1. Somebody who's fallen in a sin or caught in a sin, restore them. But the person who says, yeah, I went forward in an altar call, and I did so back in 1987, and everything is just wonderful, and I'm saved. But, you know, bring some more brewskis, and where's that marijuana? You know, and they, they just start partying everywhere. Oh, it's okay, praise the Lord. It's herb, right? God created the herbs of the field, and they just start smoking the herbs of the field and getting drunk all the time, and they are uh, philanderers and sleeping around. It's okay, I love God. You know, it's like, man, you are deceiving yourself. That is not what scripture says. God calls us to be holy and set apart. Again, this is not that somebody doesn't fall into a sin. It's that they say the sin is okay. God will forgive me and it's all right. You can do it too. You know, God's a big God. He loves us all. Well, he does. That's true. But we forget about the justice of God. And so there can be those inside the church that think it's okay to be involved in stuff like this and Apostle Paul says no. Twice he says no. This is not okay. So, with all of that, you're probably going, well, am I saved? I I don't know if I'm saved or not. You know, all this stuff, like I sin, and I try not to sin, but I just blow it, and I've, I've committed some sins more than once. Does that mean I'm practicing sins even more than three times? I just can't. What am I supposed to do? I want to calm you down i just want you to relax a little bit this idea of asking jesus to save us can we lose that if it is genuine you know can we can we have eternal life but it's not really eternal because we gave it up and it's only temporal eternal life and we'll just kind of rename it eternal life is eternal life if you have it you're going to have it forever The question is, is it genuine? When you went forward or you said the prayer, was that genuine? And this is the way that you can tell. The fruit of the Spirit will be evident. Somebody who gets saved. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And so those who have 
accepted Christ have crucified the sinful nature. Now, we're not always successful in that. Sometimes we like to resurrect it. We say, get up off the cross. Come on, we have something to do. And then I'll put you right back there. You know, we, we want the flesh to operate when we want it to operate, and we refuse to let it die all the time. That's why Jesus said, Pick up your cross daily. What does that mean? Crucify yourself. I don't like that message. I want what I want when I want it. You know, that's all of media, right? You deserve a break today, right? I did it my way. All of that stuff, that's not biblical. That is worldly. That is fleshly. Paul said, I want to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. What? Crucified? Yeah, I want to know him and him crucified. How he died and was able to give up his self for the Father's will. That's what Paul wanted. This is so contrary to human wisdom, especially the false teachers who are out there. I have a Cadillac because God wants me to have a Cadillac, right? I have a million-dollar home because God wants me to have a million-dollar home. Or they're just fleecing the sheep, false prophets. And people gravitate towards that Because they desire those teachers because they have itching ears. That's what I want to hear. I want to hear that God wants me rich. I want to hear that God wants me blessed. I want to hear that God doesn't want me sick. And I can hold on to that all day. Don't talk about this suffering stuff and giving up things for everybody else and for Christ. Just don't talk to me about that. And that's so false to hold on to that. But yet they make lots of money. And they use it on themselves and they bathe themselves in luxury. And of course, what do you think Christ will say when he shows up? And this is simply from reading the word. If you read the word and you interpret it properly, that's what it's going to tell you. It's like, okay, you get to die now that you become Christ and been born again. You're born again, now you get to die. Isn't that wonderful? And so that's the understanding that scripture gives us. But you will demonstrate the fruit of the spirit especially love. You will have love for those who are around you. And look, this is not 100% of the time, right? I have issues like anybody else. More minor with companies like the four-letter company that shall not be named. You know, I, I, I have issues with that, but I love the people that work there. They need Christ just like anybody else. I love the sinner who is a drug-infested, living-on-the-street individual. They need Christ just like anybody else. I love the Muslim who is on jihad because Christ died for them too. I don't like what they're doing. Matter of fact, I hate it. I hate what they're doing. But God loves that individual, and he is not willing that any should perish, but all should be saved. And that's our job is to get them the gospel. So love will be evident We will, those who are saved, endure to the end. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, it talks about all men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Matthew 24 says the same thing. So does Mark chapter 13, verse 13. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And so this idea, if somebody is in church and then they're not in church, were they ever saved? Well, Obviously, you know, if you go to First John, First John says they went out from us because they were never part of us. If they were part of us, they never would have left us. And so in other words, it wasn't genuine that was there. Now, if somebody left after being in the church and they come back, 
They probably always had it. They just backslid. But how do you know for sure? You don't. You don't know for sure. How can you have this assurance that you are saved? Well, hold on to your seats. Those who leave the faith, I just talked about 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. It talks about those who going away showed that they never belonged. But Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given to me, but it will raise them up at the last day for my Father's will, is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And what can separate those who are saved from God, from Jesus Christ? Romans 8, I'm sure you're familiar with it. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So nothing can separate us from God. The problem comes in is we cannot discern those who are genuine and those who are not genuine. We can't peer into their heart to see if it was sincere and they asked Jesus to save them through all humility. We we can't discern that. If somebody says they're a believer, we treat them as a believer. If somebody says they're an unbeliever, we treat them as an unbeliever. And that means we don't judge them. We are not supposed to judge those in the world. We're supposed to judge those inside the church is what uh, the scripture says. And so those who were in the church, are they saved? Are they not saved? If they went out from us, they were probably never saved. If they returned, they probably were saved. They were just backsliding. And how can you walk away having some great assurance of what has taken place? You know, Paul, when he talked to Timothy, he talked about those who were leaders in the church, that those who, were, who have served well have gained great assurance of their faith. And so the individual who knows that they have com- made a commitment to Christ sincerely, they have adopted God's view of what sin is, and they don't hold to their own view. Like, it's fine, I'm just going to do this anyhow. It's no problem for me. I think I have the grace of God to do it. Well, chances are you don't. Chances are God says that's wrong and we are deceiving ourselves if we get involved in something like that. But if we obey God's commands, First John chapter 5, or First John, there's First John, Second John, and Third John. First John talks about several different times how you can know you are saved. And one of them is if you keep God's commands. If you keep God's commands, obviously you're saved. If you don't keep God's commands, you're probably not saved, right? The scripture, it's so clear. It's not ambiguous in any way. Now, what about this? Somebody is in the church. They walk away and they say, I don't believe in God anymore. Will God violate that and save them anyway? The answer is no, he won't. He won't violate the individual's free will. So the person who seems to be saved seems to have eternal life if they say, 
I don't want your stinking salvation. I don't want to be saved. Just leave your Christianity in the church, and as long as you keep it there and keep it personal, it's just fine. I don't want anything to do with it. God's not going to come in and say, well, I'm going to save you anyhow, and grabs him by the neck and, the, and says, you're going to heaven whether you like it or not. You know that He's not going to do that. He doesn't violate our free will. And so then someone said, well, see, they could have been saved, and then they walked away. They can not remain in God's hand, and he'll keep them there. Nothing can take them out, but they can jump out. Well, I don't know if that's true or not. They can jump out. I don't know that you want to jump out if you're saved because you have the Spirit of God in you, right? So I think if you're saved, you're saved. You're not going to want to leave. You're not going to want to go back to the world. I mean, why would you want to? This is what the argument is being made for the Hebrews who were here. You know, the meaning of the text, it it, has been taken so far out, like, see, you can lose your salvation, you can't be restored again unto repentance if you trample the Son of God underfoot all over again. It's just worthless. I want to read that again. Chapter 6, verse 4. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. What does this mean? Remember, you are a Jew, right? He's talking to the Jews. What's taking place is the Jews want to go back to the sacrificial system. And he's saying, don't do it. In context here, they're saying, yeah, we know the grace of God. It's all good. It's wonderful. But we're going to add to this circumcision and keeping of the law and the festivals and the sacrifices, okay? And he goes, no, what are you doing? If you have come from this covenant, the Old Testament covenant, and then you've come to the new covenant, the covenant of blood under Jesus Christ, and you go back to the old covenant, there's no sacrifice left. You see how that works? If you sacrifice a bullock, it's meaningless. The bullock was meant to point to Christ. The ram was meant to point to Christ. The lamb was meant to point to Christ. And so you get to Christ and you go back. It's worthless. It's meaningless. You can't be restored here again. If you go back to that, you're not saved is what he's telling him. And so he's saying, don't go back to the ways under the old covenant. Stick where you are. But we take this in our own view and say, see, you can lose your salvation. It's not what it's talking about here. He's saying, don't go back to the old system. Get rid of that old system. The new system that Christ has set up, that is the one that is efficacious. That is the one that is meritorious. That is the one that will get you saved. Leave that old system behind. It would be equivalent for us. Yeah, I'm going to follow Christ with my whole heart, but I'm going to go back to the world. I'm going to mix the world with that a little bit. Yeah, have that marijuana and have that alcohol, and have the other drugs, and recreation, and, you know, philandering, and all that, I'm just going to keep that with my Christianity, and Christ would say, there's no sacrifice left for you, because you're saying, hey, it's okay, I can do both, no, there, there are all kinds of precautions set up in scripture saying, don't, we need to stick in the new mode, the new thinking, the being uh, sanctified, the being set apart for Christ. He even says in verse 9, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. In other words, he's saying, I know you're going to stick where you are. I understand that you guys are saved. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work of love. You have shown him as you have helped his people and continue 
to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. In other words, stay with the works that you are doing now. Believe in Jesus Christ. Cultivate that faith. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what is promised. Now, with that, Scripture tells us that if you're not saved, you're supposed to ask to be saved. What if you're unsure? Now, for me, in my early Christian days, I said the prayer over and over. Just want to make sure, little fire insurance, you know, going to go forward. I'm going to pray. Okay, yeah, I accepted Christ again. And how many times have I done it since then? In the, I don't know, 35, 40 years that I've been saved. Many times I have said it. Why? I'm unsure. Well, no, I'm not unsure. I just like to say it. I, I like to know that I'm saved. And so what I'm going to do here is if you're not assured, if you're unsure, are you going to heaven or are you going to hell? We can obliterate all doubt today. All you have to do is sincerely and humbly say a prayer to accept Christ. That's it. And ask him to give you the assurance. And so we're going to do that. I'm going to say a prayer. I want everybody to repeat it after me. Like me, you can say this prayer of salvation over and over. It only takes one time to get you saved. But we can say it again, especially for those who are unsure. We'll say it with them so they don't have to say it alone. We're all together. We're brothers and sisters. This is good. So I'm going to say this prayer to accept Jesus Christ to ask him to give us all assurance that we are saved and set us on the right path. So please bow your head and pray with me and please repeat after me. Dear Jesus, I believe you are able to save me from my sins. I believe you died for this purpose. I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I receive your Holy Spirit into my life to dwell with me forever. I humbly submit to your will for me. I will strive not to resist you. I will fully trust in you for eternal life. Please help me to be greatly assured of my faith and rest in the gift of your salvation. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name. Now with that, if you've never said it before, well, now you're saved. If you're unsure, now you can be sure we've settled that issue. The point now is Work the works that God has called us to do before, and he set them up before the foundations of the earth. Cultivate love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And God will enable us to remain steadfast. Nobody will take us out. Now, with that, we are going to receive communion this morning. And I'm going to have the guys come forward in a second, and they're going to pass out the cup and the the bread. And I want you guys to hold on to it as they're passing it out. And if there's anything else that you need to ask God forgiveness for, everything has been completely clean. The slate has been wiped. 
but maybe some direction or maybe some counsel. Uh, if you need some additional prayer afterwards, I'm available for that. Uh, Eric and Dustin are available for that. My wife is available for that. Some of the leaders of the ladies' ministries are all available for prayer or for counseling afterwards, and we want to invite you to that, uh, to um, participate in that. And if the worship team would come up right now, we're going to uh, be receiving communion, and we're going to sing a song. And as we're singing a song, we're going to talk about or sing about God's mercy. And so as we're doing that, if you need to be in an attitude of prayer, uh, may God bless you as you do that. <laughs> 